Good morning, everybody. And good morning to those of you who are watching online as well, uh, live or uh, on demand. <clears throat> it's great to, great to be here uh, this morning with you, and thank you uh, for being with us. We like to say at Five Oaks that understanding your Bible and your part in God's story doesn't have to be a mystery. And so I invite you to open up your Bible to Genesis 1-1. We're not going to spend a lot of time in Genesis 1-1 uh, but uh, you can follow along as uh, a little bit later as one of our five oakers reads the passage. So we are continuing in our series on Genesis 1, the first page, and it is a, an immersive series. And the reason it's an immersive series and we're staying in one chapter for so long is because so many of the major themes of the Bible are introduced here and then continue on through the rest of the Bible. And so the rest of the Bible is constantly hyperlinking back to Genesis 1. And so we are doing sermons and mini-series within this series. Uh, there are all kinds of things that we're going to be looking at, like our identity, sexuality, life and community, faith and science, faith and work, a bunch of, of other subjects like that. And so we have been for uh, three weeks now, we're spending five weeks looking at the second word, uh, the second word which occurs 35 times in the chapter, so it covers a lot of the chapter, but the second word is God, and we're doing a mini-series on God. He's the subject of the first sentence, he's really the subject of the first page, and he's the subject of the entire story that the Bible tells. So thinking about God can be difficult. It can present some really interesting challenges, and yet it's really so important to think about God. He is the subject of the story of God. We could become experts in the Bible, experts in the story of God, and in some ways never step back and think about the God uh, that the story is about and to contemplate Him. And it can be difficult, though, to uh, contemplate Him because... It can be really overwhelming. It can really be overwhelming. I had um, an interesting relationship with something that overwhelmed me, uh, something that uh, from my childhood, I was very interested in astronomy. And so um, I would go to uh, uh, Miami Science Museum as I was growing up many, many times. And I never wanted to be an astronaut, seemed a little too risky. But I did want to be an astronomer. Uh, for quite a while. And I was just absolutely fascinated by everything, um, everything having to do with, with uh, the, 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 uh, the universe. Uh, lately, I've gotten reinterested, and part of the reason I've gotten reinterested is because of the, the Webb telescope. If you look at my, uh, my newsfeed, it's just filled with, it starts to see what you like looking at and what you open. And, and so I, I have all kinds of articles on the Webb telescope and the pictures of the Webb telescope. I find it absolutely amazing. But between my childhood fascination with astronomy and then my looking at the pictures of the Webb telescope, I have to say that I actually, my interest in astronomy actually cooled down. And the reason that it cooled down, if I, uh, I, I thought about this many times. I remember one time going to the planetarium here, you know, seeing one of the shows that they do, you know, where they light up and talking about it and feeling absolutely overwhelmed by it. Like, it's so big, I can't get my head around it. And because I can't get my head around it at all, and it is so big that I just, I 
don't want to look at it anymore. I don't even want to think about it anymore. And, and so um, some people say that they, they don't like that kind of feeling because it makes them feel insignificant and small. It's not, it's not really the feeling that I had. If I were, never thought about this till, till this week, but if I were to identify what bothered me most about it, it's that it made God, my conception of God, feel insignificant and feel small. And I think there's a reason for that. I think uh, along with just about everybody, we have a tendency to humanize our God and to uh, shrink him down to something smaller than what he is. And when I look at the, the universe, it seemed bigger than the God that I know. So if you've ever had an experience like mine, I hope that in today's sermon, your conception of God expands, that you see God for how big he is. At the same time, I don't want you to expand so much in your mind that you're overwhelmed by God and you go back to a smaller God, a miniaturized God. So it's a, it's a fine balance here between those two things, and hopefully we'll strike that balance as we go through this passage. So my goal is that we would all understand kind of how mysterious God is and how big God is, the mysterious things of God, understand it just enough to be able to appreciate how important it is to think deeply about God and to be filled with awe and wonder and fear and deep humility, but that we wouldn't be so overwhelmed that he would feel unapproachable to us because he is approachable. So I want to show you where we're going. If you look at the outline, if you're taking notes, if you look at the outline, uh, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be kind of going in and out, in and out between two different things, two different concepts. We're going to go in, in and look at, well, actually, we're going to go out, first of all, and look at God's transcendence. And then we'll come and we'll look at God's imminence. So transcendence has to do with the fact that God is beyond us, bigger than anything. And on the other hand, imminence has to do with God being near and approachable. So we're going to go kind of back and forth. So we'll start with his transcendence. We'll spend some time thinking about how much bigger he is than what we often think. But then we'll talk about knowing the knowable, that we can know the, un, uh, the unknowable. And then we're going to talk about big again. And we're going to talk about those aspects of God that are transcendent. And then we're going to talk about God's nostrils. Just wait for that one. That brings him down again to imminence. And then we're going to talk about four benefits of God not being simply a better version of ourselves. All right, so that's where, that's where we're going. We're going to pray, prayer of illumination. First of all, for, um, that God would illuminate his word, that his Holy Spirit would illuminate his word. So this is based on Genesis 1.1, Isaiah 40, and also a passage in Colossians. So please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, only you have measured the earth's waters and held all the land in your hand. Only you have measured the ends of the universe. And while your spirit is beyond our understanding, still he counsels, teaches, and guides us. Through your eternal son, the universe was made, yet he is our shepherd. He gathers us in his arms and carries us close to his heart. Help us know you and love you 
more deeply. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've been doing the series, we've been asking some of our younger five oakers to read our passage for us or recite our passage for us. So here we go. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> His parents were here last night. He's so aggressive. You know, it's just like, he's done. As you can imagine how many takes that took. All right, we're going to start with Bigger, Faster, Stronger, um, looking at God's transcendence. So back in 1998, we'd been living here about a year, our family, uh, the Woodbury High School football team won the state championship, and we were following them. And, uh, and it, was, it was a lot of fun. And so there were all kinds of uh, articles and discussion about what made that team so great, and some of the things were some of the stuff that were happening behind the scenes. It was a kind of a positive thinking program that they did, but there was also a, a uh, program called Bigger, Faster, Stronger. It had been around, at that point, it had been around for 20 years or so, but they had adopted the bagger, Bigger, Faster, Stronger program. And um, the whole idea behind it is imagine every player becomes bigger, faster, and stronger just to a certain degree, but if every player becomes bigger, faster, stronger to uh, just a little bit of a degree, they get, the whole team gets so much, so much better. So they, they, they preach that and they work that and, and they did the workouts and the speed workouts and all that kind of thing to become bigger, faster, and stronger. Now, I want you to imagine with me for a moment scientists finding within the human body a lever that they can, that they can push, a, a switch that they can switch so that without us doing anything, just using our body potential, our bodies became bigger, fat. Within weeks or months, we developed to our full potential, bigger, faster, stronger. And not just that, but imagine that it also, with that lever, we became as smart as a human being can be. So, all the records would break, and we finally reached our maximum potential, and we, we broke all the records, and, and then it stopped because we had reached full human potential. It just, it just stopped. Now, a little science fiction, right? Well, let's imagine that we're there. We're at our fullest potential. How much closer would we be to being like God? How much closer, if we're, if, imagine this is kind of an infinite line or this is a gigantic line and down here is a little atom, okay, and God's up here. How much closer would we be? Well, and I want to I contend that we, it wouldn't show, there would be no change. We wouldn't be any closer to being like God. Not, not even in the smallest, smallest way, because God is not a bigger, faster, stronger, smarter, wiser, better version of ourselves. He is what some theologians, the term that they use is he is holy other. He is holy other. So we're here at the transcendence, okay? This is where our, our vision of God needs to expand. He is holy other. We think oftentimes of God. There's there's reasons for this. 
But we think of God as being just a bigger, faster, stronger, smarter version of ourselves. We, we emphasize God's imminence, the ways that we are like Him or He is like us or that He is near and, and all that sort of thing. We, we emphasize that and we tend to de-emphasize His transcendence, his, the ways that He is not like us at all and we're not like Him at all, that He is wholly other. And so a theologian that I've been reading uh, over the last two or three weeks, um, Matthew Barrett, he says, we need to dispense with the modern theological agenda to create a God in our own image, a God whose imminence has swallowed His transcendence, a God that can be controlled by the creature because He is not that different from the creature. It's a great it's a great warning, and it's taken me a while, to be really frank with you, it's taken me a while to get the full meaning of what he's talking about there. So again, transcendence speaks to God's differentness. Imminence speaks to his sameness and closeness to us. Another distinction that theologians make is between uh, God's attributes that are incommunicable and those that are communicable. And those sound like big words until you realize that over the last three years, we've been using those kind of words a lot, right? Incommunicable or communicable diseases, right? Been through a pandemic. Uh, so we're, we're kind of used to that language. And so they're not really that big of words to us anymore. So there are aspects of God that are not communicable, all right? They are incommunicable. There are aspects or traits that we will never have. We will never have these. So uh, we can never be eternal, for example, as God is eternal. That's an incommunicable attribute of God. We can never be eternal because we had a beginning. Eternal, God is eternal, meaning he had no beginning and he has no, no end. We'll no, never know everything that God knows. We'll never be as powerful he, as he is. We'll never sovereignly rule like equal to him or over him. That'll never happen, and there's, there's philosophical reasons why it can't happen, and there are biblical reasons why we can say that that will never happen. But as soon as that could happen, any of those things could happen, he would cease to be God. <laughs> he, he would cease to be the supreme being in all the universe. But there are other aspects of God that are communicable. So even though he is holy in a way that we will never be holy, he calls us to live holy lives, and He actually makes us holy. He sanctifies us. Uh, same goes for love, justice, goodness. Those are attributes of God that, that will never be. He is, he is those completely, but we will never be those completely, but those are things that we can be. Okay, so we, we don't strive to be infinite um, always, but we do strive to be holy. We do strive to be just and, and good. So we tend to lean in to communicable aspects of God. We tend to, to like those, and it's natural because they're more relatable to us. But you might say the Bible begins, Genesis 1, begins with the incommunicable, the transcendent God. Uh, the first page uh, establishes that as creator, God is wholly other. I mean, you, you, you need to get into it quite a distance before we see God as being 
imminent. Uh, he is before all things, including time and space. Only He truly creates anything. We talked about the fact that that word occurs 48 times in the Old Testament for create. God is always the subject of that word. And so um, He can simply speak and nothing becomes something. The whole earth, the universe was created by, by Him. So He can speak and something becomes nothing. Chaos is ordered. I mean, Universal chaos is ordered by God. Meaning and purpose are bestowed. Real meaning, not made up meaning or meaning that I want to have for my life. Real meaning is bestowed on us. The first page starts with the transcendence of God. It displays the incommunicable aspects of God first. And here's a question that we might want to ask. Might our understanding of God be diminished when we begin at a different starting point? All right, now I'm only talking about starting points because you can't, you can't take God's communicable, that ways we can be like Him, that He's close to us, and, and then take His incommunicable and say, well, the more important ones are the incommunicable. You actually can't do that. Uh, I wanted to get into that today. I can't. But question four gets into it. There's a video there to watch. And I recommend that you watch it. I've watched it about four or five times, and I see something new every single time. So I recommend it to you. Um, but we, we're, we're, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about where we start is important. The Bible starts with the incommunicable, and we probably need, most of us, not all of us, but many of us need a correction of getting back to the incommunicable in many ways. Now, it makes sense that we start with the communicable because it's relatable. Again, it's relatable. Um, but right from the first page, God is wholly other before we see Him as relatable. We, we have to constantly remember that God is not a bigger, faster, stronger, smarter, wiser, better version of ourselves. We have to remind ourselves as we pray, as we think about God, as we read the Scriptures, we constantly have to remember that He is transcendent. But we can know Him. Here's we get into the imminence. And so we can know the unknowable. So much of what, God, what makes God God is so different from us and so much outside our own experience, personal experience, and our own abilities to perceive that we cannot comprehensively comprehend Him. In other words, we can't totally know God. There is so much that is unknowable, but we can comprehend what He reveals to us, and He does it by His grace. By His grace, He has revealed Himself to us. He could remain transcendent. He could remain way above us and beyond us, but He reveals Himself to us. We can know, personally know, the unknowable God. So in Scripture, on the one hand, we have ideas like this one in Psalm 145. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom, which can leave you kind of going, why should we even try? <laughs> Since we can't fathom it, right? But we need to, we need to think about how we can't fathom it um, so that we keep God as God instead of God as just a bigger version of ourselves. On the other hand, the Bible tells us, says Jesus in John, it says, Jesus answered, to Philip, who had said, show us the Father, said, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. 
How can you say, show me the Father? So we have in Christ this revelation of God, Him revealing Himself uh, in a way that is, is when you think about God's transcendence and God uh, becoming truly human while remaining truly God, it's, it's mind-bending, um, hurts, hurts the brain. So we have Jesus as this revelation of God. And then we have passages like this in Romans. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, so we're talking about here transcendence, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So Paul is making a case in Romans 1 that, that even without special revelation, we can know something of the unknowable God. We have Scripture, which is God's special revelation. We have the Holy Spirit, who illuminates uh, God's Scripture to us. And so we, we could just keep listing passages that show us how we can know the unknowable God. Um, we simply can't know everything there is to know about Him. All right, let's go back to transcendence. We've gone from transcendence, He's not just a bigger vision, version of us, to eminence, we can know Him, we can personally know Him, even though there are aspects of Him that are unknowable. Now, let's, let's step back again and look at what we're talking about when we're talking about aspects of God that are transcendent, that are incommunicable, um, that we need to be thinking about. So pastor and author Rick Cornish has a little book called The Five-Minute Theologian that I would recommend to you to add to your uh, Kindle library or your home library, little five-minute uh, versions of that explain some, some pretty significant things in Scripture. It's like a systematic theology that's only maybe 200 pages long or something like that. So he has a chapter that called Bigger Than Big. It's a five-minute read on four of God's incommunicable uh, attributes based on a fifth attribute. The fifth attribute is that He is infinite, okay? So if God is infinite, let's look at four, four things that tells us uh, about Him. So these attributes expand our vision of God. They help us see Him as bigger than, the bigger that He actually is, the bigger, beyond bigger that He is. Uh, these are uh, the kinds of attributes that make our universe smaller, okay? That when we're at a science museum, at a planetarium, and we're hearing about the bigness of the universe, it'll become smaller and God becomes bigger. So the first one is God's omnipresence. So remember, we're looking at God being unlimited, infinite. So God's unlimited relationship as is related to space, space. Um, so this is uh, this passage in First Corinthians eight, First uh, Kings eight says, "But will God really dwell on the earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built?" This is an, in, an amazing passage because this is at the dedication of the temple. Solomon has just built. God is first temple. They've had a, a portable temple, the tabernacle, up until this point. And he's just built a temple. And the temple is God's home among his people. That is how it's described. We're going to look at this some. This is another one of those themes in first, uh, Genesis chapter 1. And we talked about it the first couple of weeks of this series. 
Uh, but the temple is built to be his home among his people. And yet, when the home is built, Solomon recognizes. He, it wasn't like he was some kind of dumb, ancient person who had small ideas and thought that the temple was actually going to contain all of God. But he says right, right from the start, he goes, no, this temple can't contain you. And the reason it can't is because God is omnipresent. He is everywhere um, all at once. And, and so think of the web telescope and think of the pictures of, of stuff that is so, so far, galaxies and black holes and, and stars that are just so ridiculously far away. Um, and there's so ridiculous number of galaxies and, and, and stars. God is there. God is there. He's always there because he's always everywhere. So at the same time, someone's praying and he's there. So it's not that he's like super speed or something. You know, I don't know what kind of concept we have when we think of God hearing our prayers, all of our prayers, all at once, every prayer in the world right now, actually being there, personally there to hear that prayer. At the same time, there in the furthest galaxy. All right. Um, that, that begins to go, oh, he's bigger, isn't he? He's, he's way bigger. It should hurt our brains to think about it. Think of God as being, um, secondly, uh, eternal. So that's God's unlimited relation to time. So in Psalm 90, it says, before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From eternity past to eternity future, you've been around. You have always been because he's outside of time. And at the same time, he's able to inhabit every moment of time. Outside of time, beyond time, and yet able to inhabit every moment of time. God is also omniscient. That's God's unlimited relation to knowledge and wisdom. His understanding has no limit. He's, uh, he would be the ultimate project manager uh, or planner, wedding planner, or anything because he knows all the facts about everything. All the facts about everything. He knows every contingency from every single source possible. He knows them all. There is nothing he doesn't know. Nothing he doesn't know. And then think of his omnipotence, God's unlimited relation to power. So Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So he not only is the greatest project planner, <laughs> he has the power to accomplish his projects completely. He has the power to do that because his power knows no limits.
All right. Transcendence. Now back to eminence, to God's nostrils. Uh, so I'd sent in my outline this week to be uh, printed, and uh, one of our staff who was printing it texted back. I, I texted and said, I sent the email and texted back and said, can't wait to hear about God's nostrils. And I said, wait, what? On the text. What, what do you mean? And she sent back a picture of God's nostrils on here. She goes, I thought you were kidding, but maybe, maybe you're not. I said, gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> exactly what I wanted. So, God's nostrils. So, the majority of the time in the Hebrew Old Testament, when it talks about God's anger, it describes it using a combination of two words, the typical Semitic way of talking about anger, which is two words, hot and nose, a hot nose. And so it says, almost every time when it says, if you, you read in your translation, God became angry, that's a correct translation, uh, because it wouldn't make any sense to you. It says, God got hot-nosed. <laughs> but that's what it's saying, God got hot-nosed. The people... The Bible people, uh, the, the people who read the Bible, the people who were the authors of the Bible, the inspired authors of the Bible, they're fully aware that God does not have a nose, all right? They're fully aware that God doesn't have a nose, that God is a spiritual being, that He doesn't have a nose. So theologians call that, I mean, there's lots of terms you can talk, talk about anthropomorphism and stuff like that, but one of the terms that's used is analogical, that this is an analogical way of talking about God. It finds a human analogy to try to help us um, relate to God. So, a similar thing happens when God reveals Himself in ways that seem to contradict His incommunicable attributes. So, in the Bible, you have God walking with someone, and that would suggest He's not omnipresent, right? He's walking with someone. Um, the Bible says God, many times it says, God changed his mind. Now, why would God change his mind? Why would we change our minds? We change our minds because we've got new information. We change our minds because we made a bad decision. We change our minds because we didn't foresee the circumstances changing. And even though we said this is going to happen or we're going to do this, we change our minds because now there's new facts that we just didn't know. Well, none of that can be true about God because He's, he's omniscient. You can't surprise God with information. You can't like, whoa, I didn't know that was going to happen. It just, it, it just would fly in the face. But the Bible says that. The Bible talks about him regretting that he did something and then relenting and then changing his mind. It uses that kind of language. These are analogical ways of communicating something about God. God doesn't have a nose. God doesn't change his mind. <laughs> They're analogical ways of talking about God. Um, what, what might be behind changing mind? It's, it's a way of using a human analogy, a human way of thinking to communicate this is how bad things have gotten, okay? Or this is how good things have changed. 
Not that God was surprised and needed to change his mind. It's an analogical way of talking. Now, I haven't completely thought this through, but I want to I'll drop something on you, a thought that I've had many, actually for many, many years on this, but I haven't really like tested it. Um, so you might go, well, why then does the Bible do that? Can it kind of, isn't that confusing? It says, first of all, God is, you know, it, it speaks of him in all these transcendent ways, and then it gives us these imminent ways that seem to contradict those and expects us to figure that out. And not everybody figures it out. Some people get into some pretty bad theology because they, they, they just shrink God down as if he was just like us and he would change his mind. I, I haven't heard anybody say that he has a nose yet, but that's probably the next theological movement that'll be out there, you know. And... Um, and so, why does God do that? And, and my answer, for those of you who are, you know, have a little bit of biblical background, you'll completely get this. The answer is Genesis 3. <laughs> it wasn't supposed to be this way. The, 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 our inability to grasp God, Genesis 1 and 2, the first and the second page, it wasn't supposed to be difficult. But we push God away, and we still push God away. And it's just how it is. It is what life as a fallen creature looks like. It's a mess in every way. It messes with our minds. It messes with our logic. It messes with our ability. It messes with God's uh, communicating to us. We have to constantly balance these things because we can't grasp God anymore. We just can't grasp it. Not that we can ever grasp them completely, but we are that much farther removed from God. So, God graciously speaks analogically to help us see that He is near, and He's not so holy other that He doesn't understand us. At the same time, don't shrink Him down to an analogy. Don't shrink Him down to a God that just is like moody and um, changing his mind. If you do that, you're contradicting what the Scripture says, number one. And number two, you're making your life really, really difficult, your life with God, because there's nothing you can really trust about God anymore. He's, he's just a very powerful, moody individual. And um, that is maybe the most frightening thing that you could ever imagine. So, four benefits to God not being a better version of, of us. God is not a bigger, faster, stronger, smarter version of us. So, the first one is, the benefit is shock and awe. We need awe in our lives. We need awe in our lives. There's some researchers who've looked at awe, and they make the point that when we don't have awe in our lives, when we can't see things that make us go, and we don't, have that in our lives enough, what happens is that we become very self-centered. We become very materialistic. We become very disconnected from other people. Those are all bad things from a scriptural standpoint and even from a psychological you know, standpoint. You know, I mean, most people in our society understand that being completely disconnected from people or being so disconnected from people and materialistic and self-focused is not a good thing for society or for individuals. All right, so... That's what happens when we're missing awe. 
Well, these researchers say we need a daily dose of awe. Well, we as Christians have a moment-by-moment dose of awe. We have His Word. We're in constant communication and prayer with a God who is transcendent and imminent. And, um, and so we can bring that into our lives. Um, I wish I had time to go into these two passages, but I don't. But they are passages that uh, you can circle this. There's not a question about it either. But I, it is Exodus 20, 18 through 20 is one of my like, favorite passages, just in a weird way, you know, kind of like, look at what it actually says here. It's a very interesting, very interesting passage, so, um, and it speaks to this. So, second benefit is assurance. Kind of went into this already. If you've got a God that's moody and it's going, you know, all over the place, like us, we have no assurance of anything. But Philippians 1.6 says that God has begun a work in us that He is going to complete. He is transforming us, and He is going to complete it. And we can know He's going to complete it because of His transcendence because he is not like us. There are a lot of things we don't finish, a lot of things, really important things that we don't finish, and God is going to finish his, his work. God also promises throughout Scripture, probably seven, eight times in Scripture is this phrase, I will never leave you or forsake you. Uh, we can count on that because God doesn't change. God doesn't change his mind God doesn't go back on his promises. I will never leave you or forsake you. We're always telling each other, um, don't worry, everything is going to work out. We say that to each other a lot. We love to say it to our kids. And the reality is there are some things that don't work out. And there are some things that we wish, if we had the power to do anything about it, we would change the outcome but we can't make that promise. But God can make the promise and say everything will work together for good Amen. to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And the only reason he can make that promise is because of his transcendence, because of all those attributes that are incommunicable, that are so different than us. Um, a third reason why it's good that God is not like us is that um, it is that we can be dependent on Him. We can be dependent on Him. I think I'm going to touch this on this next week, so I'm not going to go into great detail on this, but just think about um, our dependence on Him. God in creating us, makes us dependent on Him. He sustains us. Uh, that's all throughout Genesis 1. It's not just that He's creating, but He is holding it all together. And the Scripture makes a point that He is holding everything together, this order, this, this earth that we have. And, um, and so uh, we can depend on Him. But imagine depending uh, on yourself. You are not dependable. God is dependable. You are not dependable. You're not dependable because of your sin, but you're also not dependable because of your human limits. There's just a lot. You, you, you don't mean to. You make promises. You can do this. You're going to do that. And you literally can't do them all. 
We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. You literally can't do them all. It's not even a sin that you can't do them all. Probably not good that you promised that you would do them or you said that you would do them, but you literally can't do them. But God is dependable. So one more reason why it's good that God is not just a bigger version of us is love. It's the experience of love. There's a lot we could say here, but, um, you know, at the core of the most important commandment is that we are to love God. Uh, Jesus recalls Deuteronomy 6 and then Leviticus passage when he's asked what's the most important commandment. But Deuteronomy 6 is known as the Shema, uh, and, and it's the greatest commandment. And it's interesting because it's the greatest commandment, let's, put it, let's go ahead and put it up there, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. All right, that is the greatest commandment. Interesting, it doesn't say, obey, here's the greatest commandment, obey the Lord, obey God who is invinc the invincible ruler of everything. <laughs> now, obedience is important, it's part of love. Uh, John teaches that. Uh, obedience, Jesus teaches that. Obedience is part of love, but that's not what's in the lead. That's not, you know, it's, it's love. God is invincible ruler over everything, but that's not what we're to think of when we think of the most important command. The most important commandment, the greatest commandment is to love God. But I want, I want to focus just on that word that I capitalized there, the word your God. Love the Lord, your God. It's a possessive pronoun. It's not, it's not saying you own God. Uh, it's not that kind of possessive. But it's recalling the intimate relationship between God and His people. When, when we get this in Deuteronomy, there has been an intimate relationship that has been developed between God and His people. And Jesus says that there's an intimate relationship between God and His people people. And so God has, in a sense, given himself over to us to be our Lord, our God. And that's why we can love him. He's our God. He's our Lord. So let's begin our response to God's revelation of himself through his word. I encourage you to take out your communion packet. One of the things that communion reminds us um, of is that God is not only our God, He is the God who is for us. That's another reason why we can love Him, is because He is for us. And He's for us in a way that only God can be, the transcendent God. He is for us in a way that only God can be. Because Jesus' death can only have the effect that it has. Because He is God. He is God. Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Covenant's a relational word. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. The scripture tells us that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is not a bigger version of us, but you are God. You alone are God. Father, thank you that in spite of the fact that you are bigger than big, you come down to us. You send God the Son to become one of us, to live a perfect life, to show us what humanity can be, to die on the cross for our sins, you being torn to pieces for our sin, you absorbing your wrath against sin in yourself. Father, help us live with the reality of how big you are and at the same time draw close to you, knowing that we can be close to you. You're that big that you can, you can be with us personally. Help us to live with that in our hearts and minds. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.